So, uh, welcome. Man, if I'd have known this many people going to be here, I would have studied tonight. <laughs> Is that working? Elvin, it's working right? All right, we, that was a mic test moment, so if that shows up on the podcast, we're going to fire somebody. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, me, right? That's right. Boy, this is, this makes me feel important having this big stand here. <laughs> so, welcome. How are you tonight? Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, so, take your Bibles and let's go to Matthew chapter 13. And I uh, want us to kind of revisit a little bit what we did this morning, but I don't want to rehash it all, and I don't want this to to be too far down in the weeds uh, as it relates to Bible study method. I think that we want to find a good, healthy balance between uh, the the technique of a, of interpreting parables and the application part of it for us. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, what I'm hoping in these sessions is to give you tools that help you to pick up your Bible and go to different parables and be able to handle them in a responsible way. All right? So let's go back and let's have someone read the parable of the weeds. This is in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Somebody please read those. Okay? Thank you. So let's, let's go backwards a little bit and let's lay or revisit some of the foundation that we have laid on all of these parables and the study especially. So most scholars would say that there are approximately 40 different parables that Jesus told as recorded in the Gospels. Now it's hard for us to nail that down because some of the parables that we have are given different names like a similitude if it matters to you but... Realistically, let's just say that there's approximately 40 parables that Jesus told. And of those 40, they break down into different categories. There are one-point parables. Anybody think of a one-point parable Jesus told right off the top of your head? Pearl of Great Price. Okay, so last week, I think it was last week, uh, we were in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Is that right or was that two weeks ago? I don't remember. Uh, Okay, so 44 through 46. Somebody read those verses, if you will. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Two different parables there. How many main characters in each one? One. So it's a one-point parable, all right? Both of those are. So there's also two-point. Some scholars say there's only six one-point parables that Jesus told. I'm not so sure that's true, but that could be. So... Uh, one-point parables, then there are two-point parables. Uh, for instance, we did uh, an examination of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that one? Was that last week? I'm going to have to go back and check my notes to see what I preached last week, I guess. But uh, So there's the Pharisee and the tax collector. How many main people in that one? Remember he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other no-good, dirty, rotten sinners like this tax collector. And then the tax collector says, I'm just, I don't even belong here, basically, all right? So two main characters, that means there's two main points. Uh, another one is, well, let's move on. There, then there are what we call complex three-point parables. Complex, so if there's complex three-point, then you know there must be a simple 
three-point parable. Complex would be the parable of the sower. That was the one we started with in this series, if I remember right. Remember? So how many characters are in that? Three. So you have the sower and then the soils and the seed, right? All right, so that tells us and reminds us that the main characters don't necessarily have to be people. So those are complex three-point. The simple three-point is what the one that we looked at today falls into, and that is the wheat and the weeds. So we're going to come to that in a few moments to, to kind of talk about the parable a little bit more. But let me, let me, let, let's talk about it from uh, the 30,000-foot the view. How many key characters? Well, three. But who are they in this one? Yes, the one we just read. How many? There's three. Son, okay, well, let's go not to the interpretation, we're going to come to that, but to the parable itself. The Son of Man is represented in the parable by the sower, sower, right? He also, okay, the the reason I'm kind of camping here is because we get three different pictures, okay? The Son of Man, that's in the interpretation. The sower, I mean, excuse me, it's the master, that's what the word I was looking for. The guy who's in charge of it all, it's his field. Right? So, he's one of them. What are the other two characters? The wheat and the weeds. All right? Now, we're going to come to those others. All right? There's no wrong answers on the table yet. All right? So, everybody's fine. But this is one of those deals that it takes a little bit more work for us. That's why I wanted to dig on it a little bit tonight. So, three main characters is the master the one who does, you know, make sure that all the decisions are made right. And then there's the wheat, and then there's the weeds. Now, again, following Craig Blomberg, not that you need that, just want to give him credit because it's his observation, that a lot of these parables, especially three-point parables, will come down and, and there will be an authority figure in the parable. And the authority figure... And his, the point that is made from his character, if you will, carries more weight than the other two. I'm going to kind of flesh that out as we go forward because I want to move on out of the weeds into a little more usable stuff here, right? So I want you to think of this authority figure and then wheat and weeds. All three, forms a triangle, right? All three of them have points to be made in this. But we have to pay particular attention to the one of the authority figure, in this case, the master of the house. And as the interpretation says, that's the son of man, right? Okay, that's right. All right, so with that in mind, let's dig a little bit. Um, Where do we begin when we come to a parable study? Context, very good, all right? So what's the context of Matthew 13, uh, verses 40? whatever we're in here, 30 and following, 30, yeah, 24 through 30. What is the context of this parable? Chapter 12. Chapter 12. <laughs> Very good. That's where I was this morning, right? As a matter of fact, you're going to find out as we go through this that I chose to let the context drive the entire message today. And I took a slice, and we're going to talk about this, but I took a slice of the overall parable and emphasize that. 
but I did so because of the context. So in chapter 12, if you go back to that, and uh, well, let's just look a little bit because this morning I just kind of gave it a tip of the hat and moved on. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so how did Jesus respond to that? Well, you can read those next few verses and you can see that. But essentially, Jesus, I'm going to put this in road trammelese, all right? Jesus' response to that was, to those religious leaders who were opposing him, you guys can just sit down. <laughs> okay? So we go to verse 9. And he went on from there and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, You guys can just sit down. All right? Now, he didn't say it exactly like that, but if you go back and you dig on the answer that Jesus gave them, he essentially said, Y'all sit down and keep your mouth shut because you're wrong. Okay? Now, he didn't say it that way. I know that I'm paraphrasing greatly, but that's the approach that Jesus is taking. I want you to see this rising, escalating opposition and the way Jesus handles it with them. And so we go a little bit further in that same deal, and it says, Jesus said to them, or to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out. It was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. You see the escalation? Let me give you one more. I'm trying to help you understand why I took the, to the attack angle that I took this morning. Verse 22, And then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. If that happened on the steps of our church out there, how would we respond to that where God delivered somebody from demonic oppression? I hope somebody would say praise the Lord, at least that, right? All right. So here's how they responded, verse 23, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. But knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, You guys sit down. Okay. He said a lot more than that. You can go read it. Do you see the intensity of the escalation here. This is not just Jesus doing something and those Pharisees getting a little bit twisted about it and having a phone conversation with 15 other people later. They now are going after him to kill him. So the context of that is, remember, Jesus is telling these parables to his disciples. Not just his disciples because there's other people around. But he's telling them these disciples, and it's causing those disciples to go, what's he talking about? Now, they're smart enough to know that there's this escalation of tension between Jesus and these Pharisees. And so they're beginning to put those pieces together. They don't finally put it together, I don't think, until after Jesus is crucified. At the very least, at the crucifixion, many of those disciples, well, they leave, right? There's only a few that stick around even close, and only John stays there. And so this, this is, you can see this in the Gospels. There's this ongoing 
tension that the disciples have about what's going on. So Jesus uses that as the opportunity to step into their uncertainty, into their tension and anxiety and teach them things about the kingdom of God. So back to our parable here. What is Jesus saying? Into that context with this escalating anxiety, what is he point to them? What is he trying to say? Before you answer that, let's come back and look at a couple of other things here uh, as we go forward. Uh, now, I'll just kind of highlight this for you. I chose to let that context drive the entire sermon today. Now, the reason I did that is very intentional, um, and that is because I sense in our world among Christians today increasing anxiety about why God lets garbage happen the way garbage happens. I've heard it over the last couple of weeks, for instance, in some of the um, ethical positions, as many Christians, most Christians I think might say, as the lack of ethics in some of the decisions that are being made in various parts of our country. And so there is this escalating tension and anxiety that I find among Christian people. Uh, some of them are us. And some, some of them, or one of them is me. I, I, I look out there and I go, man, how much longer could this go on? And how in the world did we get to where we are in such a short period of time? And so what I chose to do, and there's a reason I'm telling you this, okay, but what I chose to do is let the context of these disciples and these Pharisees, as Jesus stands in between all of them and, and try to use that as an opportunity like he did with this parable, I think, to speak to how do we go forward in this mess? And the answer was what? Never lose sight of the master. I, I don't know who said that, but that is a great statement. Okay, so come back to another element in this that I want to emphasize in just a few moments, but I wanted you to catch that. Here's a principle for you out of all that. Here's what I was driving to. When you come to study the parables, first of all, handle them well. Okay, Do the work that we're talking about here. Uh, but when it comes to how you settle into it, don't be afraid to find yourself in the situation or in the text. Okay? especially those of you who are teachers or preachers in here, this is a great point of reference. Okay? Because when you come to a parable like this, there's three main characters. Any one of those three main points that are made from that could drive the entire thing. Or you could try to get all three of them in there. But you should have the freedom to be able to zero in on one of those. I'll reinforce this in a few moments, but you should have the freedom to be able to zero in on one of those that most fits you, if, especially if you're reading this devotionally. Where do you find yourself in the text? There may be three main points, but if the Holy Spirit is knocking on your door about one of them, you should listen to that. Yes, sir. Okay, let me build off of that question. If we don't answer it here in just a second or a few minutes, then ask it again, all right? But I want to do that here. Let's come to this. From the vantage point of, you remember when we first started and the old way of handling parables? What's our old definition of a parable? 
earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, what I've said is there's probably more than one heavenly meaning in that earthly story. Okay? If it's a one-point parable, if it's one main character, then it's probably an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But when there's three main characters here, then there's probably three main points. But, and this is to Drex's point, I think, you have a lot of moving pieces in this parable that you don't have in some of the other ones. I wonder if that's not what drove the disciples to go, uh, let's ask him later when we get a chance for him to talk about this, right? You, you know, I, I love trying to get into the human part of the disciples following Jesus because you know that there were times that they looked at themselves and go, did you just... And Simon Peter, I'm sure, always had an answer for that. But So let's hit that, all right? So let's go back. If... If that approach is right and there's only one meaning for a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, how would you ever decide what's the one meaning of this parable? Okay, so we go to, well, there was another option. You remember what I said was a long-standing historical option in handling parables? It was allegory where every little piece had some kind of meaning. Is this an allegory? Let me, let me do this. Let's go back a little bit. If there was only one... No, I'll save that for a minute. Is this an allegory? Well, look at what Jesus said. Let's go read that part of it now. Verses 36 through 43. Somebody read those because this is Jesus now explaining what he meant in this parable. So somebody read 36 through 43. So is that an allegory, an allegorical interpretation? So what happens to the approach that I've been teaching now for five weeks, six weeks? All right, let's look a little more closely. Let, by the way, here, let me go ahead and throw this out now. If you didn't have that explanation that Jesus gave, would your understanding of each of those elements and the whole parable change any? In other words, would you have guessed right on all of those things that he said? His disciples didn't, I'll just tell you that, right? So, is this an allegory? Well, Jesus at least seems to give what looks like an allegorical interpretation. How many different elements do we find in the parable? So you have the master and the wheat and the weeds, but what else do you have? You have the field, you have the servants, you have the enemy, you have the harvest, what else? The harvesters. What else? The fire. Okay, the burning of the we of the weeds at the end. What else? I still didn't hear it quite. The barn. Okay, so there's ten. How many different elements does Jesus explain? Go back, verse thirty-six. I'm going to hold the ten up, so I'm going to hold. You do the rest of the work now. What did, how many did Jesus say? What were they? Let's take them off. They take, okay, so Jesus mentions the Son of Man. What else? The field. The seed. Okay, so I'm totally lost now. I think, I think that Jesus mentioned seven items. Is that right? Did I count correctly? So if this was a true allegorical interpretation... If there are ten elements mentioned, 
there would be ten elements described. Okay? So at the very least, it's not fully allegorical in the way Jesus approaches it. So here's a principle I think that we should draw from this, okay? Um, we need to allow that correlation of elements, okay, if you want to call that allegory. We just have to be loose in our definition of allegory if we're going to do that. You remember, those of you who were here the first night when I took that one parable and how historically, uh, well, Augustine especially had given all these different out-of-the-ballpark kind of explanations, right? So Jesus doesn't do that with this, but he does at least give us some correlations about those specific things. So we need to allow that kind of correlation for key elements, but even those must come together underneath and to drive home the main points. Okay, you, you understand what I mean by that? If we're going to take those different elements, it's a very dangerous thing for us to do that. Jesus told the parable. Jesus knows what he meant with those individual elements, all right? But if we're going to do that, we need to make sure that every one of those different elements drive home the point of one of those main characters. Could we say that those seven points that Jesus makes there drive the point home of the whole parable? And I would say to you that I wouldn't have had a sermon on this parable this morning if I didn't take it that way. All right? So let's take another step with it. Back to this idea that this is three points. Remember the triangle? But at the top of the triangle is the authority figure. All right? Each one of these characters makes a point. So what are the main points? Let's hear from you. Three characters, the master, the wheat, and the weeds. What are three main teaching points out of this parable? What's that? The master's in charge of it all. I like that part of my sermon. <laughs> I really do. Okay, what else? Okay, I, I think that's a great way to say it, right? And they live, all right, all right, all right. So you get the parable, right? Um, here's an element for you. Uh, if you'll look at this parable, here's another way to look at it. I didn't do it this way this morning, but it's, it, it fits. Each of the main characters holds the upper hand for a while. When is the master holding the upper hand? At the harvest. At the harvest? I would also add at the planting. Okay? It's his, it's his stuff, right? If it wasn't there, but that's pushing it. But the harvest is really the emphasis here. All right? As far as the master is concerned, he's the emphasis. He's the one who's in charge, and he's the one at the end who says, okay, here's what you're going to do now. So that's important. Um, so we take that part of it, and he's got the upper hand at the end then, right? So who has the upper hand at the beginning and in the middle? So can we say that the weeds, the enemy is responsible for that part. So at the beginning, the weeds, the enemy has the upper hand. It's a great way to say that, by the way. The enemy has the upper hand at the beginning. But not at the end. We've already decided that the master is the one who has the upper hand at the end, right? So in the middle, somewhere, there's the wheat part of that. Three points tied into time, all of that stuff. And so each there, there is this representation of obstacles to the kingdom that we find here. 
The disciples are living that. Now I'm back to context, right? The disciples are living the obstacles in the kingdom. They fully believe that Jesus is special. They may or may not have come to the point yet where they believe that he is in fact the Messiah. I think that they were getting there if they weren't there already. And that's part of their dilemma. How can this be the Messiah? They fully believed that or at some point they got to where they fully believed it, but they believed it enough to drop everything else and follow him. How could it be that he is not being accepted by these Pharisees? So there's obstacles to the kingdom that are being taught in what Jesus has to say here. That's the weeds being planted by the enemy. But there's also the inauguration of the kingdom. And then there's the final consummation of the kingdom. So the master sees to it that the seeds are planted. And so that field that is the world, and we, if I understand the way he said that right, we're the ones who he plants out there. So there's this timeline, if you will, and it's represented by these three key elements or characters in the story, and each one of those fits into the push. So what's the push of the whole parable? If we now, after doing all of that work, if we said, let's just reduce it to one big truth, what would that truth be? Yeah, so let me, let me play both of those together, okay? The master wins, all right? Let me, speaking of that, let me, I've been wanting to do this with you all for a while anyway. Let me summarize the teaching of the book of Revelation for you. Because I've been asked several times lately, won't you do a study on the book of Revelation? Let me save you the trouble of a 40-week study, and let me just give it to you right now. You ready? God wins. That pretty much settles it, <laughs> right? And we can, we can do all kinds of stuff around all those other things that nobody understands except God probably. Um, but God wins in the end. That's, that's a primary teaching of this parable, all right? And, but to pull in what Farley said with that, Christians win also. See, what I did not emphasize this morning, strictly because I didn't have time, and I knew I wasn't going to have time to develop it, much less make the point. But those last couple of verses that Pam read a, few, a little while ago, I think it was Pam, uh, are really critical. So let me get them for you again. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's not a bad truth to hang on to. So here's the danger of what I just did with you for about three minutes. We elevated one truth to be the whole truth for that parable. Now we did it because I led you down that path and I get it. I, I, again, I want you to hear me say, actually this is my point in doing that. When you come to these studies, you should listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you about the point that most fits where you are. Okay? Uh, that's what I did with the sermon. I felt like for the church of our day, not just our church, but for the church of our day. I know a lot of people listen to our TV broadcast and our podcast 
that go out, people all over the state, and I've even had some who live in other parts of the world who said, you know what, we listen to our church's podcast online every week. It's important that our Christian church of our day recognizes that we have to coexist, but we have a deeper responsibility than just coexisting. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to be ambassadors. Actually, we're not called to be that. If you look at Scripture, it says we are that. Okay? So either we do that and are that, or we live below the level of what God has said that we're supposed to live. And so this anxiety that is emerging, I'm sure it's not new, but it is getting more uh, noticeable, to me at least, in our day of Christians looking around going, oh, this is just all falling apart. Why does God, here's our, you know, the favorite one, why does God let, why does God let good thing, uh, bad things happen to good people? Can I settle that for you? There are no good people. <laughs> for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So if it wasn't for God's grace, none of us would make it. So I think it's important that we get that and we come back to that, that our lives, because of the sin that, that has devastated creation, including us, each of us, our lives need Jesus Christ to fix that. And so what happens with us if we're not careful is it, when we embrace that and we personalize that and the forgiveness that that brings and the new life that that brings and the new perspective on all of creation and all of history that that brings, when that happens for us and then we look outside and we see it falling apart, it's like, really, God? <laughs> and it's good for us to remember, and I think the disciples needed that too. That's why we find this parable in here. It's good for us to remember that in the end, God wins. Actually, a better way to say it, I tried to get this across in the last part of the sermon this morning. God's winning today. It just may not look like He is, okay? but He is. He's in charge. He's always in charge. Okay, so with that, let's come back a little bit and say this. Uh, we can. Uh, I'll put that in a principle for you. Uh, for your toolbox there. Uh, it's okay for you to zero in on one element of the parable for application purposes. Just don't limit the parable to that. All right? Make sure that you do the full work because actually you may find that the Holy Spirit tomorrow will have an emphasis point for you from one of the other characters. <laughs> so that's how he works. All right? Now, with that in mind, we're almost done. Hang in there. Um. And based on what I just said, the slant part of what Jesus does with these parables, where he gives the truth kind of, kind of in a subtle way, subtle like a brick between the eyes, if you get it, is that often the subtlety of the teaching that's in that will be lost until you get down and say, okay, what is God's message for me in this? Okay, so make sure that you don't just become an academic studier of Scripture. Okay, you need to handle Scripture well. I've said that a million times, and I've got 10 million more, okay, to, that I'm going to say that true. 
You have to handle Scripture well. But you have to let Scripture handle you also. And it will do that, I'll guarantee you. It will do that. Okay, so my key point today was that we must coexist. I'll be honest with you, I was super nervous about preaching that today as a main point. And the reason I was is because I didn't want half of our church to go, well, there he goes, now we're going to get all loose in our theology and, you know, it's going to be anything goes because we have to coexist with people who don't believe like we do. Uh, and then my other part of my nervous self went to other people going, well, the, there you go, there's a permission I need not to take a stand for Jesus Christ in any way. And Remember what I've said several times in here. The goal is to stay on the horse, right? Not to fall off on either side. And I just gave you two ways to fall off, at least what I intended with the sermon and certainly what the scripture, what the parable teaches, I think. So one of the main points of this, and this was the weak part of the sermon, is that we must coexist. It's from the slanted part of what Jesus is teaching here. I'll say it again. I said it this morning. You don't, as a rule, if you're trying to grow a good crop, you don't let the weeds just grow. I've seen fields where they let that happen. We saw orange groves in South Texas where they didn't control the weeds and they lost the entire grove over a period of time. You just don't do farming that way. And that's the part that Jesus' listeners would have gone, what? You know the dog look? <laughs> I think that's where they would have said that in here. But for those of us who get it, and as Jesus explained it to his disciples, I think that they probably went, oh, well. And I wonder if enough of them got it or got enough of it that it changed the way they saw the Pharisees from that point forward. That's what, that, that is what his intent was. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. All right, so with that in mind, uh, look at chapter 9, verse 54. Matthew 9, 54. Well, that wouldn't work. All right, so I wrote down the wrong number here. So that that I just said, you just forget that. I just wrote down the... Maybe, must, maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Let's try 34. Sure, while we're on a hunt here. There's only 66 other, or 60, anyway, let's go ahead. Nine, nine what'd you say, 34? Bob's bailing me out here. Yeah, so this fits some of that other stuff that we were talking about, right? Verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute and brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Have you heard this before, by the way, tonight? So it's not the first, I mean, this, this was before the other time. And never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees says, he's a devil. That's Roe Trammell translation of the day. So if that's the context that Jesus tells this parable in, is it possible that there's some of that left-hand, right-hand power scheme going on here? 
You know the difference? I mentioned this maybe last week, I think. But most people uh, are right-handed, okay? So I know that y'all don't like to fight. I hope you don't. But most people, if, I, if they really want to deliver a blow, they're going to use their right hand to do that, right? And so there's this power scheme uh, in relationships. This is, I'm getting a little psychological on you, but sometimes our words are our fists. And so one person said it this way, it may well be that this whole slanted idea that I'm talking about with Jesus in these parables, that Jesus is fighting with his left hand. Um, but in this case, especially when you get the description of what's happened, that these Pharisees are fighting with their right hand. They're saying outright, this guy's from the devil. And so every once in a while, you'll see Jesus turn and use his right hand instead of his left. These parables, especially in this little section, in this particular one, the way Jesus comes at this in the parable itself is very much a left-handed parable. But when he sits down with his disciples, he goes with a right hand and says, let me explain it to you for what I really was saying. And I know it had to be in the minds of those disciples. They're putting together these events, chapter 9, chapter 12, and the series of events there. And I, I know that the disciples started thinking at some point, you know what, these guys... Jesus is going after them. That must have been an interesting day. Well, yeah, the, I think all of the Jews would have gotten that one because that's, a, that's one of those eschatological phrases that they used, that there was coming this day at the end of, of everything, the consummation of the ages, when God would clear the deck, basically, and say, okay, so now it's judgment time. And, uh, of course, most of the Jews would have thought, and that's when we get to be kings again, okay, because we're God's chosen people. And Jesus is turning the tables on that thought. But, yeah, I think clearly they would have heard that, but I don't think that the Pharisees would have right off the top said, he's talking about us. I think, uh, well, if they did, they would have thought they were the wheat. So when Jesus explains it, I think is where you get that jump, okay? All right, time's up. If you want homework... You can do Matthew 13, 47 through 50, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit next week. All right? Let's pray. Thank you for being here. God bless you. Let's pray and we'll go home. Doug.